For several months, the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the National Fraternal Order Police have been engaged in extensive discussions with the Biden administration in good faith to develop his executive order on advancing effective, accountable policing and criminal justice practices to enhance public trust and public safety. We applaud the administration for listening to our constructive feedback and incorporating our suggestions into the executive order. Our organizations, which represents our nation's chiefs and a majority of the rank-and-file officers, believe that it marks a significant step in the continuing efforts to strengthen trust between the public, police, and criminal justice system. During our discussion, the IACP and the National Fraternal Order Police remain focused on communicating the challenges facing the law enforcement profession. We made it clear that our profession is comprised of dedicated individuals who are committed to the preservation of life, maintaining the highest ethical standards, and treating all individuals with dignity and respect while holding themselves and others accountable. Many state and local law enforcement agencies across the country have taken the lead in an effort to make our community safer, modernizing policing practices and making our broader criminal justice system more effective and more equitable. To that end, we stress the need for more proven training, agency accreditation, data collection initiatives that incorporates due process and more uniform policies based on evidence-based leading practices. Joining us today is Jim Pasco, Executive Director of the National Fraternal Order Police, to talk about our discussions with the administration and how it helped shape the final executive order. I'm Patrick Hills, National President of the Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Jim, thanks for joining us on the Blue View. This has been a—it's been an unusual couple of years for for law enforcement. Really, test us to the limits. Uh, but before we get into to the executive order and where we are in police reform, uh, for most of our members know who you are. But uh, any of our viewers who don't know Jim Pasco, could you give a little background on yourself? Yeah, I—I've uh, uh, been around town a long time. I came to uh, to DC uh, on the, my first tour. In 1971, with uh, ATF, uh, now the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and uh, and fell in love with D.C., which made me almost unique among uh, ATF uh, folks because most of them either didn't want to come here because they knew better, or or spent their whole time here trying to get the hell out of here. But uh, I I really fell in love with it and. Uh, and it kind of marked the rest of my career because I spent a good deal of it uh, either trying to stay in, in D.C. on subsequent tours or, or um, get back to D.C. when they moved me out. Uh, but uh, in any event, my last few years with ATF, I was assistant director for Congressional and Public Affairs. So they taught me a, a, a trade effectively. And as I always say, if it wasn't for that, I'd probably be a greeter at Walmart or something like that. But but um, uh, while while in that job, uh, a lot of things were going on. The the '94 crime bill was in play for a number of years leading up to '94, as was the assault weapons ban, the Brady Law, which ATF was deeply involved in, and and so were the police organizations, most notably the the FOP. So my first exposure to the FOP was as a lobbying organization, at that time led by by uh, Dewey Stokes, who had been president for a number of terms and was just a natural for the Hill. You know, he he knew how to get attention, he knew how to keep it, and he made his points in in very colorful ways. And uh, so he he was very effective for the FOP, and and it 
a point in time, my predecessor, former national president, Dick Boyd, uh, who had been uh, very successful in, in uh, being the, the permanent in-place uh, lobbyist, effectively, for D.C. and Washington, started to have some health problems and uh, decided he wanted to go back home. He's from Oklahoma. And out of the blue, Dewey Stokes asked me if I'd take this job, and, and I told him I would. This was in 94, end of 94, beginning of 95. I said I would, but I'd only do it for three years because I'd, you know, I'd retire and I'd work three more years and then I'd really retire. And, uh, and I'm still here for whatever reason, you know, I, I guess the only thing I can conclude is that I'm really enjoying it and, uh, I haven't, uh, messed it up badly enough to get fired. Well, I got to tell you, it's, it's our win because, uh, because your, your relationships here in the Hill, uh, in your way of doing business has really served this organization well for all of these years. Uh, so Jim, the last two years have been really a challenge for law enforcement. A lot of talk about police reform, uh, and a lot of different directions. And, and the FOP has played a, a key role in, in trying to have those fact-based discussions and, and have a law enforcement perspective on it. You know, in, in a previous podcast, we talked about, uh, police reform and, and how it's taken shape in the house and then on to the Senate and what happened there and our role in, in, in working with uh, with both sides of the aisle trying to, to come to some consensus to improve the criminal justice system. We also worked on an executive order, a previous administration, but really what I'd like to talk about today is the president's new executive order. Mm-hmm. Um, President Biden just signed an executive order that covers a lot of things, but th- the journey to get to this has not been an easy one. Uh, it has taken quite some time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when we first started engaging with the administration with the executive order and and how it evolved over time. Yeah, I, if I if I may, I'd like to go back just a little bit uh, before that to the to the closing days of the conversations on the uh, George Floyd bill when it got over to the Senate. And as you know, uh, we we uh, had forged a a partnership, if you will, with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And we're we're working uh, together uh, with the with the synergy that our two organizations can bring because they're the largest management organization, and we're the largest labor organization. We we getting together, we could uh, we could exert quite a bit of leverage, and uh, so we we started there, and we we had a good working relationship with. Uh, both Senator Scott of South Carolina and Senator Booker of New Jersey, and uh, significant progress was made. So when we left off, because the talks finally did collapse, unfortunately, we had we had a uh, made a good deal of progress and feel that felt that the uh, the work product that we had developed in conjunction with these two senators, uh, both representing their their parties. In, in the talks um, was a was a good framework to, to to step out from again unfortunately it collapsed so we found ourselves you know at at uh, loose ends if you will on, on the uh, police reform front and then the administration decided that in view of the fact that legislation was clearly impossible that they would uh, they would undertake to write an executive order and Early in that process, uh, they asked uh, pretty much all the police groups uh, to to get involved in in discussions, and uh, we were we were parties to those discussions. But also, 
we in the IACP had been asked separately to uh, to give our input, um, you know, uh, based on our perspective developed from working with the, the Senate on the, on the George Floyd bill, which we were happy to do. And we felt like, here again, we felt like we were making good progress. We were working at a high level in the, uh, in the White House with, uh, with Ambassador Susan Rice, who heads the Domestic Policy Council, and her staff, and Dana Remus, the, uh, the uh, White House Council, and members of her staff. And uh, we, we, were, we were moving along. And then, at a point in time, a document, which turned out to be genuine, uh, was leaked uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the press that was a working draft, a White House working draft, which looked nothing like any of the conversations that we had had. And it was far, far uh, beyond anything that we could ever even work from in terms of acceptability. And that caused a huge uh, problem among the law enforcement groups, including us and including the IACP. And we were all ready to walk away. And at that point, Ambassador Rice and, and Council Remus did what, what they referred to as a, uh, as a reset. And uh, we spoke uh, individually with Ambassador Rice and with uh, uh, Council Remus, and uh, and and they asked us to work with them directly on this and comprehensively, and in a in a totally off the record and confidential manner, and which you're aware of because I know you took some criticism uh, because people assumed because we weren't saying anything publicly that we were not engaged. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, you probably still have some bruises from that period of time, but the fact is we had pledged our confidentiality and they had pledged theirs. So we were all working together and it, and it really made for more effective conversations and, and negotiations because we weren't, nobody was playing to the press. Nobody was playing to any constituency and we made started making a good deal of progress. And, uh, uh about uh, maybe a month and a half or so ago, we got to a point where we were down to a few very, very tough issues. Those, those major details included things like addressing no-knock warrants, uh, chokeholds, um, the, uh, the issue of, of use of force generally. And uh, we, we found ourselves, you know, almost an impasse. But we fortunately, we were finally able to work it out. And in, in one case, we had, a, we had a product on the shelf, which we felt addressed the, the use of force issues in a very intelligent way and in a way that already had the support of the entire law enforcement community. And that was the, uh, by, by adopting, asking them if they would adopt and consider the uh, consensus use of force principles, which were which were uh, put together over a period of about three years by all the major law enforcement groups in the United States, um, with at, in in a convening called by the FOP and IACP, and uh, we we worked with both the White House and as well as with 
justice and homeland security because they have the bulk of the federal law enforcement officers in those two departments, although there obviously are some in other departments. And, uh, and that was found to be acceptable. We also worked out uh, chokeholds in a way that while they'll be more carefully controlled and in some instances um, would not be permitted, um, there, there still will be provisions to, use, to allow for the use of no-knock warrants where no-knock warrants uh, would, would, uh, would be mandated by the fact that otherwise there might be a significant risk of, of, of life uh, or loss of evidence. On the chokeholds, there again, uh, we had we had already in in uh, uh, an amendment to the uh, the uh, consensus use of force document, we had addressed the chokehold issue in a manner which was acceptable to the White House staff who were engaged with us on this effort. So it turned out that we were able to overcome these two significant obstacles and then we we basically had a framework that with you know a little cleaning up which we had to do over time uh but but no no major problems semantic problems we were able to turn our full attention to what in many ways is the most important part of the document and that is the the uh, policy statement the front end which describes what the what the reasons for the for the executive order are, what the goals of the objective of the ob, uh, executive order are, and how they how the administration intends to achieve those goals, and and I used to have a boss at ATF who used to say ninety percent of getting consensus is in how you present your case, and we felt the manner in which the the uh, case was being presented was a manner in which which would be perceived by law enforcement officers as picking winners and losers. And guess who the losers would have been? It would have been the law enforcement officers. And again, that was our, our perspective on it. And we made that very clear. And, uh, and Terry Cunningham, my counterpart at IACP, was involved in the negotiations, was a rock on this. And, and we were also, I should say, we were also very ably aided by staff both here and at IACP, Gene Vogelin and Sarah Guy at IACP, and Tim Richardson, whom many of you know, uh, almost legendary char character here at the FOP, and I'm sure most of our members, as I say, uh, already know who he is. But he did a he did a remarkable job in this effort, and uh, we we took it into the home stretch only a couple of weeks ago, with a couple of little changes left. That we were hung up on in the uh, in the uh, policy statement, and we finally, finally, were able to work those out on a on a Saturday morning about two weeks ago, and we brought it to our bosses, to you, President Yos, and to the president of IACP. They both signed off, and here we are now. Uh, the the uh, document we can't; it is not our document. You know, executive orders are the, the the documents of the president of the United States. He signs on the dotted line. So we have to give some credit to his staff and to the president for for allowing their goals and objectives to be to be modified somewhat 
as informed by our perspective on these on these very important issues, very important to law enforcement and very important to the public that that law enforcement is sworn to protect and serve. So here we are, and and the document has been signed, and and uh, our members need to understand uh, what a what a what a great and I'm not I don't mean this to sound like I'm taking credit for it, but it's been a it's it's a it's a great victory for law enforcement here because while while it, the document lays out a framework for improving the relationships we, between officers and the communities they serve and ensuring that all individuals will be protected and served equally it does not do so at the expense of any of the legal protections or or uh, contractual uh, protections that police officers have and need and are vitally important to to continuing to have uh, vigorous, proactive law enforcement by well-qualified, well-trained, and well-equipped officers. So um, will everybody be happy with everything about it? No. But it's a document that, that um, addresses the needs and priorities of the civil rights community, it deals with the needs and priorities of the law enforcement community, and it should result in, in a, a greater level of public confidence and safety among the, the public that we are all here to serve. Yeah, Jim, there's two parts to this thing, and you've already covered one of them quite well, and that is, it really is how it's framed how it's presented. And, and we know that that is not an easy task. And we know that that is also something that we, you know, we were hung up on because words, words do matter. And at least in, in terms of our members, anything after that point, if you, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't ring a bell or, or carry, carry something of significance to, to people, they, they may look at it completely different and then everything else is lost in a message. Right. So, so you've already discussed the, you know, the part, the presentation, you know, the president has a tough job of trying to, trying to, to balance this on both sides and also have rec recognize that law enforcement's role. Um, you know, we're 800,000 men and women across this country show up every day uh, in, in some very, you know, bad situations and, and make a difference in the lives of so many people. Um, so it's not easy to find words that are going to, to, to kind of hit all sides of this issue. Um, and, and that's a difficult task. The other part is, is really the meat of what's going on here. An executive order really affects federal employees. It sets a, it sets a, a tone for what's expected from the White House and what he'd like to see Congress address. But at the same time, these rules really affect more of federal officers than they do a local, with, the, with some exceptions. Um, so when you get into the meat of, of what the executive order is, um, there are some key things that were important to law enforcement, protection of qualified immunity, a use of force language, uh, Graham versus Connor. Uh, all of these things initially were, were part of the discussion. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these things have, uh, you know, kind of fit into the, to the executive order itself? And Yeah, well, um, again, you're correct. You're absolutely right. The, the executive order is a directive from the president. It is not law, and it, it cannot have the force of law. Only the Congress can pass laws. So the, the scope of, of uh, his authority with respect to uh, directives to law enforcement extends only to law enforcement officers in the, in the uh, departments and agencies uh, in the executive branch, not, and does not include 
by the way, uh, any law enforcement officers in the legislative branch, for example, the Capitol Police or the Supreme Court or anywhere in the judicial system where they have their own, the Supreme Court has its own police force and they're, they won't be covered by this either. But um, as to the, uh, as to the, the qualified immunity issue, and the the use of force provisions in in uh, 18 USC 242 and so forth um, they could not be touched uh, there was they they cannot be addressed in an executive order they could be addressed legislatively but obviously uh, uh, we were successful on the legislative front in keeping that from happening uh, and uh, so what we have here is a document that will that will um, provide a standard uh, use of force policy for all the federal agencies, whether in justice, homeland, interior, or anywhere else, and uh, and it will it will have absolutely no effect on the doctrine of qualified immunity. And Graham v. Connor again is a is a Supreme Court decision, and it still remains the the governing guidelines for use of force by law enforcement officers uh, uh, until such time as the Supreme Court decides otherwise. So, so none of the things that are of most significance to law enforcement officers in terms of their, their, their safety and their ability to defend themselves and the public that they serve will be adversely affected by this executive order. And in fact, um, what we have been able to do in the executive order is is add very very strong language. Well, the president has added very very strong language, but we advocated for it uh, with respect to due process rights and any of the any of the proceedings that might occur, adverse actions that might occur uh, with federal officers pursuant to uh, this executive order. That the due process is totally totally in play. And cannot and the action cannot be taken without full due process. Uh, you know, a, a number of, uh, of federal law enforcement agencies do have collective bargaining contracts, and, and the U.S. Park Police would be one example. Um, we have a number of military installations where we have bargaining units that we represent. That would be another very good example. And and uh, uh, the uh, in fact, the Pentagon Protection Force is uh, is an FOP. Uh, uh, local, um, and it it is spelled out in several places in the executive order that nothing can be done that will abrogate the terms of any existing collective bargaining agreement, and that was language that we argued very strongly for, and the IACP, to their great and everlasting credit, very strongly agreed with us on those points, and ultimately the administration, which is a pro-labor administration. Uh, didn't have any problem in accepting them. So basically, you've got an added level of protection with respect to the the uh, the uh, stability of your collective bargaining rights under under this executive order and the guarantee of due process under this executive order beyond that which you already had. So so it actually strengthens employee rights in a number of significant ways. Jim, let's talk about. Uh... There are there have been collection data collection 
on officers for use yeah. of force for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, it was also listed in uh, President Trump's executive order. Mm -hmm. uh, it was discussed extensively in, in both the uh, the House and the Senate in, in their versions of the uh, mm -hmm. Justice and Policing Act. Uh, and there's there's uh, there's steps within this executive order that collect this data as well. What is different between what has been before and uh, and how how does it affect our you know the, the members today our, our law enforcement officers today where it didn't affect them before? Well, I I don't think that that the the average officer is going to be able to detect a very much difference. Uh, you know, the this language with respect to collection and data and so collection of data and so forth is not not very dissimilar from the. Uh, the uh, Trump executive order with respect to collection of data, which coincidentally we in the IACP also work together on. And uh, th the data that will be collected will be data which only applies to sustained complaints. In other words, an unproven allegation or, or a complaint that was withdrawn uh, will definitely not be included in the kind of data collected. It would only be a sustained complaint. And even then, an officer would have the right to review that data, to contest that data, and um, to request if if there are found to be uh, documents in there that that are materially false or misleading, to ask that those um, uh, pieces of information be removed from the file. And uh, further, officers will be able to include to counter any adverse effect of that that uh, data uh, information with respect to decorations or commendations or uh, or you know citizen uh, uh, praise to the officer directed formally to the department so it's it's not as though this is going to be tremendously oppressive and, and again the average officer um, will not find it onerous at all because in all probability it won't really affect them. Now at the high end of that, and obviously the, the you know, the real tough one is, um, is decertification. And decertification is, is also addressed in this executive order as it was in the Trump executive order. And as it would have been in whatever compromise came out of, of Congress had one come out uh, on legislatively. Uh, but the manner in which it's been addressed here, again, first baseline, uh, in my view, the, the decertification of a law enforcement officer is, is as grave and serious and, and, uh, and terrible to, you know, to, in, in the sense that it, it, it uh, for all intents and purposes, ends your career and stains your reputation for life. It's very similar to getting a dishonorable discharge from the service. And it should be treated every bit as seriously in the sense that before that, that penalty is, is uh, imposed on an individual, that individual has to be afforded every conceivable due process opportunity and right available under, under federal and state law because you do not want to make a mistake in an area like this and 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 horribly you know affect the life of an individual unjustly or incorrectly so every protection that's available has been built in to this executive order 
to ensure that that doesn't happen. However, um, I think that all of us would agree that if someone has committed offenses so heinous that they should not be police officers then, and, and they've been afforded all their due process rights and, and, and have exhausted them without prevailing, then decertification is appropriate in those circumstances. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that uh, data that's collected, something that we, we've we had a great deal of discussion on, and I guess a little bit of frustration, anyone who's dealt with with the uh, civil side, uh, civil judgment side of, uh, of, of actions, uh, law, law enforcement officers who are sued for use of force. Yeah. Uh, there was a, uh, a lot of discussion about the need to collect data on settlements that were made. Uh, on any yeah. use of force. At the same time, anyone who's been uh, had any type of uh, legal, whether it's a car accident or whatever, knows that often these decisions are not made by people. They never get a chance to be able to defend themselves. It's usually insurance companies that make these decisions. Yeah. So uh, I, th I think it's, a, it's worth clarifying that, that, uh, that really the only thing that would be recorded are judgments that come from juries, correct? That's correct. Um, it, the, the officer would, you know, would have to be uh, actually be tried, you know, in a civil case and found to have, have been guilty or negligent or whatever the circumstances, uh, uh provided for, um, uh, before that, before that would be entered into the official record, a settlement is never an admission of guilt. A settlement is a, is a financial calculation by the insurers as to, uh, how much they can afford to pay without exceeding the cost of litigation right. so it it and it doesn't go to guilt or innocence it goes to it goes to the economics of the of the uh of the case so um that will not be settlements will not be included in those records yeah a couple of other things that are in uh, executive order at least uh, in terms of studies have to do with the recognition that we're in somewhat of a crisis right now with uh, the amount of work personnel we have available for us if to, to, you know, yeah. vacancies. And it recognizes that it, it actually takes a, a number of steps uh, to, to try and combat that uh, with through funds and through grant funding and such. Can you touch a little bit on those? Yeah. One of the things that it does is address the issue of recruiting and, and uh, well, and as well as retention, but, in recruiting, uh, the, the federal government is going to use its expertise. And, you know, they're setting up a knowledge lab in the Office of Justice programs at, at Department of Justice, which is going to be like a, a, a clearinghouse for best practices in a whole variety of areas. And one of the areas they're going to address is effective recruiting. And, and not just effective in the sense that, you know, if you've got 10 jobs, you get 100 applicants for the jobs. But when you get done with your screening and so forth, that you've selected the right individuals to be police officers. There are some people who can go through life and be gainfully employed in just about any other profession, but if they, they do not have the unique set of knowledges and skills and abilities that it takes to be a successful police officer. So we, we will, out of this executive order, get another level of assistance 
in in screening and 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 uh, hiring and ultimately training and putting on the street the best yeah. possible applicants for law enforcement. Yeah, I, I want. I know. I know. We agree on this, and and, yeah. and most people in law enforcement do. Uh, our, our issue of of trying to to fill positions really has to do with finding qualified candidates, yes. not lowering standards. That's right. Uh, so lowering standards only only creates further problems. We yeah. need to we need to recognize that the steps need to be taken in order to be able to improve the criminal justice system. And it's certainly not going to be by, by lowering standards. Uh, Jim, there are, there are, there are other things that are, are in this, uh, in this bill as well. And one of them has to do with officer, officer wellness. Uh, there's so much uh, demands that are placed on law enforcement officers now, and it's only gotten worse by the manpower shortages and uh, just some of the challenges in a lot of our cities across the country. Um, can you touch just a little bit on, the grant funding that will be available for um, for officer wellness programs, and and again, that was one that that we had. Well, there had been legislation introduced um, by Congressman Trone, and then in the Senate by Senator Duckworth, uh, along with a host of co-sponsors, including uh, uh, Senator Booker, and uh, you know. Senator Durbin, both key members of the Judiciary Committee, where the where the bill would go, um, to uh, to uh, that would have provided for funds um, for officers who were who were suffering and need assistance, uh, professional uh, operations, you know, run by by mental health professionals, with an emphasis on those professionals who have experience as police officers themselves as our own sherry martin has right but um uh that that will be contemplated in the legislation which addresses every every stage of from from initial ptsd through through fighting you know horrible depressions to all the way up to attempted suicide and suicide will all be addressed by legislation but and as I say, this bill is not legislation. But what they can do is provide for assistance in dealing with all those issues, short of the kinds of things that that we could achieve through additional PSLB benefits. Which, by the way, I have I have a great deal of optimism we will have uh, by legislation uh, within the next couple of months. You know, one uh, another issue that I think uh, a little bit of a concern initially when uh, when all of this started and the initial version of this leaked out, it was kind of the stick and stick more of a stick than a stick and a carrot, uh, having to do with how grants would be awarded and a concern that in order to be able to take advantage of some of these funds, you would have to commit your agency to to do certain things. Can you can you discuss? Where we are and what this executive order does in terms of the stick and a carrot approach to grant funding. Yeah, um, initially the the way the, uh, the the grant aspect of this was set up, it would have been somewhat punitive in the sense that if you di- if you didn't uh, comply with with say the use of force provisions, which you wouldn't have had to uh, you know comply with as a state agency, because again this only applies to federal officers kind of a backdoor approach was being tried where where you couldn't you couldn't you wouldn't be eligible for grant funding for certain grants unless you complied so it was a way of of forcing agencies not otherwise inclined to do it 
to to take on aspects of this legislative this executive order um, or else. Right. And what what we uh, uh, together with IACP were able to do was was convince those that we were having the discussions with that a better way to do it would be to incentivize uh, uh, compliance by making additional grant funding available to uh, those agencies which took on the best practices that were articulated in, in the executive order. And, and uh, that uh, was here again after conversations and making the folks um, from the administration understand that, that when you take away grant money from a city, it's not the police department that's the loser. It's the Ultimately, citizens. it's the citizens who are mm-hmm. the losers. And, and by virtue of the fact that certain law enforcement activities won't be funded and, and, and won't happen. So once they understood, you know, where our concern lay, they agreed with us and, and made the change to an, to an incentive program rather than a punitive program. You know, but uh, and I, as I started, you know, I mentioned that the last two years, uh, all of the challenges that we went through, and and, and uh, all of the demands that have been thro- thrown at law enforcement, and I, I kind of feel that some of this has to do with the fact that I think we all have a, a common goal, and that is to improve the criminal justice system, improve policing. That, that's that's our responsibility. You know, when we don't get it right, it's our responsibility to yeah. examine it, determine what's wrong, and find ways to correct it. And and that's that's really it's the uh, uh, really at the root of, of our entire criminal justice system. I think if we look at the last two years, at least in my opinion, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, the last two years, we've seen legislation in states across city councils and state legislation having to do with police reform that are really all over the place. And some of them have been been really detrimental if you're having to go back session after session and find ways to be able to fix it because they didn't understand the uh, unintended consequences because they excluded law enforcement in some of that discussion. I'm sort of of the belief that the reason why all these states are doing is this wide approach to to police reform is the inability of the federal government and Congress uh, to do anything that has been meaningful. Um, how do you feel this executive order is going to fill that void since both the House and the Senate uh, have not, since Congress has not been able to, uh, to get something at, uh, reach a consensus on, on police reform? Well, first, as you know, I agree with you 100% on that assessment. Uh, I think that, uh, unfortunately, absent meaningful federal legislation, the states and, and state leadership feels compelled in many instances to, to take independent action. And with 50 states in the District of Columbia out there, it's likely that there'll be 50 different uh, approaches, 51 different approaches to how to get it right. And sadly, unfortunately, it's likely that at least half of them will get it totally wrong. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my druthers would be that we would have federal legislation, and that was one of the biggest reasons that we got involved in the discussions on the George Floyd bill. We wanted, as you said, we want to get things right. And we want to be at the table constructively offering our input to ensure not rather than trying to, 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 uh, to totally stop the bill, which would again, drive the States to want to do their own thing, but to, to, to get a bill out that, that does things the way we think that they ought to be done to best serve 
the interests of not just our members, but the 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 public that we're out there for. So uh, I, this this again, this doesn't have the force of law, but to the extent that that these issues could be addressed within the framework of an executive order, I think it does a pretty darn good job of of getting us there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly been a, certainly been a long journey to get us to yeah. get us to this point, and I know it's uh, to after two years that we've been through, some people are very skeptical about yeah. uh, about it. But at the end of the day, um, what I I guess my takeaway is is that uh, a lot of the things that are addressed in here were addressed in a previous executive order. What I do uh, like that's in this executive order, there's a much more detailed process for due process and union rights. Right. So, so Jim, I I appreciate, uh, you know, and I want to, I want to make it, uh, you know, everyone know that we appreciate, this has not been an easy, uh, easy time, especially in, in, in position here in Washington, trying to work through all of these different approaches to criminal justice, but uh, you and your staff have done an absolute awesome job um, making sure that the rank and file officers in this country uh, are part of this discussion because we all want the same thing. We want better communities, want our jobs to be safer. Uh, exactly. So so thank you and all of your staff for all that you've done. I'll give you a chance to, to do some final thoughts. Well, it was, a, it was a very interesting process. This is, you know, very much akin to the, uh, to the negotiations on the 94 crime bill. Again, this wasn't law and the 94 crime bill was, but the stakes are every bit as high. And, and the players on all sides at the end of the day were, you know, focused on getting something done that would work for everybody. And that meant everybody had to give a little and, and in return, everybody got, was able to, uh, to advance the causes of their respective constituencies. So I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to have been a part of it. And, uh, and I hope that, uh, that it, that it has, that it creates an atmosphere for, for progress that we're, we're all hopeful will be the case. Time to move on. Yep. Time to move, move past this. Let's, uh, let's adjust, fix, and move forward. Exactly. Uh, Jim, again, thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And uh, thank you to our viewers. Thank you for uh, and our listeners. Thanks for, for tuning in where, uh, to the Blue View, where we talk about those things that are vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every single day across this country and make a difference in the lives of, of those they serve. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Blue View, hosted by Patrick Yos, National President of the Fraternal Order of Police. To catch our next episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. See you next time.